Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles, please, to the letter of James. This is going to be a wonderful series, I believe. The Lord is going to pause us on and help us in and speak to us week after week after week. The subtitle for this whole series is Faith That Works. And one of the things we'll find about James is regularly he's going to be talking to us Not only about the importance of faith, but how it works out in our lives, how it actually functions in our lives, and it it needs to. So the title for today's message is The Opportunity of Trials, and we're going to read the first four verses together. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes and the dispersion greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we begin this series in James, oh, Lord, would you open our eyes to behold the wonders of your law? Lord, would you help us to see why this is here? Would you speak to our souls each and every week? Oh, Lord, as we come today to the opportunity of trials, Lord, open our eyes to the realities of suffering. Speak to us. Care for your people. Give us hope. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, one of my historical heroes, as you know, is Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was known as the Prince of Preachers. He was one of the first pastors to ever have a pastor's college where you don't just train men in a seminary way, but you train men actually how to be pastors. It's where the Sovereign Grace Pastors College was actually modeled from and still is. On one occasion, he gathered a group of pastors in the pastor's college And he said the following to them. We must preach as men to men, not as divines before the clergy and nobility. Preach straight at them. It is of no use to fire your rifle into the sky when your object is to pierce men's hearts. For your work is to charge home at the heart and conscience. Yet some preachers remind me of the famous Chinese jugglers who not long ago were everywhere advertised. One of these stood against a wall and the other threw knives at him. One knife would be driven into the board just above his head and another close by his ear. Whilst under his armpit and between his fingers, quite a number of deadly weapons were bristling. It is a wonderful art to be able to throw within hair's breadth and never strike. Listen. And how many among us have this marvelous skill of missing? Charles Haddon Spurgeon was one direct individual. And when he gathered pastors around him, he wanted to encourage them that when you preach at people, you always need to preach at their heart and consciences. You must not be like Chinese jugglers that just get close to people as they throw in the knives, but never actually go at the person. And one pastor that without doubt passed this profound test is James, the author of this book. James is no Chinese juggler. He is direct. He is sometimes abrupt. But each and every time and each and every week, you will discover that he comes straight at us and he does not miss. Each and every time he opens his mouth in this letter, he is always on target and he's always going for our heart and our consciences. And if we open our eyes and ears to these texts, you'll find he simply does not miss. Now, by way of background, it's important to understand a couple of things about this book. Firstly, it's written by James. One of the things you need to understand about James is James is a profoundly humble man. See, this is evidenced by the simplicity and brevity of his greeting. Look with me again at verse 1. He says, James, a servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is profoundly humble. Because if James had wanted to impress them, he could have easily done so. Given his background, given the profound quality of his resume, he could have said so much more. He could have said, James, the brother of Jesus Christ. Or James, the apostle. Or James, the senior leader of the church in Jerusalem. Oh, and while I'm there, I'm the chairman of the Jerusalem Council, the most strategic and historic council in Christianity ever to exist. But he doesn't. He just says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is profoundly humble. He's not seeking to draw attention to his many accomplishments or even what God has called him to due to his gifting. To James, he wants to remind them only of that which is most important to him. Namely, that I'm a servant of God, a slave to God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, that wasn't the way that James always was. If you remember when we studied the Gospel of Mark, very early on in the Gospel of Mark, not long after Jesus began his public ministry, and Jesus is starting to proclaim that he is the Messiah. He's starting to do miracles. There's so much pointing to the fact that he really is the Christ that everybody's been waiting for. And yet, Jesus' mom and his brothers... Assume he has gone mad. And so they go looking for him because they think he has gone crazy. So we read in Mark 3 verse 21, And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. They think he's gone crazy. James, his brother, thinks he has gone mad. And so they find out where Jesus is preaching. They storm in and they say, oh, whoa, whoa, can you get that guy for us and bring him out? Because they think he's gone mad. And while Jesus walked the earth, James stayed in that place. But Paul informs us in the letter of 1 Corinthians that after their resurrection, Jesus himself appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then, listen, he appeared to James. He appeared to his brother and in that moment, James's life was radically changed. As he realized, you are not only my biological brother, you are the Son of God. You are the Christ. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And in that moment, James bowed his knee to his brother. He gave his life to following Jesus Christ. And so the most important thing about him is that now he is a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's all that fills his gaze. Not the fact that he's his brother. Not the fact that he's now an apostle. And not the fact that he's the senior leader of the church of Jerusalem. And not the fact that he's the chairman of the council. Just that he gets to call him God. And follow him as his Lord and Savior. James is a truly humble man. And James, without doubt, deeply cares for those to whom he is writing. See, look, verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. See, it would appear that those he is addressing here were originally part of the church in Jerusalem. But due to the persecution that had come following the stoning of Stephen, they had been dispersed. And we're now part of the dispersion. In Acts chapter 7, we read all about the stoning of Stephen. The very, very first part of Acts chapter 8, we read, And Saul approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered or dispersed throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And so the apostles remained in Jerusalem, but everybody else is dispersed. They've all gone out. And so it would appear that these Jewish Christians that James is addressing here were at one point under his leadership and his care and his pastoral ministry, but due to persecution, they have been unexpectedly uprooted 
and scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And their lives have no doubt then been abruptly and painfully and dramatically changed. I mean, imagine it. Persecution comes to Sydney and you all flee. This is not a church plant here. These guys are refugees. They've had to flee their homes. They've had to flee everything in risk of their lives. They had unexpectedly become refugees. And in an ongoing way, they were ongoingly being persecuted for their faith. And in reading the entirety of this letter, what you discover is one of the things they are struggling with is now great poverty. Poverty that in part is coming through the opposition and exploitation that they are now experiencing at the hands of the rich because of their faith. And so these dear folk were once upon a time in a church just like this, being cared for by their pastor James. But the persecution comes, and in that moment they all have to flee. And so James is writing to them. Because he's aware that this experience that involved relocation and persecution and poverty and exploitation and hardship would be a painful reality for them. And so he writes to them to seek to care for them. He's bothered about them and he dearly loves them. And so he pens these words to them. And make no mistake, he does it in his own unique and direct way. He doesn't stumble over his words. He he doesn't care to hug them too much. He just wants to get straight to the point, straight to their heart, because he wants to care for them so clearly. And so after a very succinct identification of himself, after a very brief introduction to who they are, and a very brief welcome, literally the word greetings, every other letter starts with a little bit more than that. Hey, good to see you. Can you greet this person, greet this person? Not James. Greetings. He gets straight to it. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, just having given that background, what they're experiencing, you realize how direct this guy is, don't you? When you realize the persecution, the dispersion that they are experiencing, they are going to be gathering in small groups and reading this letter. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of various kinds. These trials would seem to be the occasion for this letter. And so James wastes no time at all in introducing this stunning instruction to them. He is no Chinese juggler. He is going after their heart and their conscience right from the start. He wants to help them. And so in a way that James is, he is direct, he is abrupt, he does not miss. And it's important to note that this style of writing, it it characterizes the whole letter. All the way through, James is going to be like this. You're going to have to get used to it because this is the way he communicates. Edmund Hybert, in his commentary, comments this way. He says, James's language is clear and incisive. It's energetic and vivid conveying weighty thoughts in well-chosen words. His sentences are short, and they are simple, and they are direct. And yes, they are. They're not complicated. At parts, this would appear to be like a New Testament book of Proverbs. It's just boom, boom, boom. He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to get their heart. He's trying to get their consciences all the way through the book. There's different times in the book we will feel a, a change in pace very abruptly. That's because James has got things in mind that he wants to address them in. And he is direct throughout. And that starts right here in verse 2. Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You know, that is a very difficult verse to hear, isn't it? And I think for many... It's a complicated one. It's one they want to just brush over quickly because it's hard to understand and grasp. What is he really saying there? And I think many people feel that way. But this is what Craig Blomberg in his commentary insightfully writes. I love this. He says, frankly, 
Many of us would prefer that this passage were not in the Bible. But it may also be one of the most profound and crucial for truly mature Christian living. I think he's right. Frankly, I think for many people, they wish this passage wasn't in the Bible. But what I want to help you see this morning is this passage is in the Bible very deliberately because James is trying to care for his original audience. And in reality, throughout, knowing that this is God-breathed, we are always in the peripheral vision as this is being reported because God wants to address us. He wants to help us in the midst of trials. He wants to help us prepare for trials, and if we be in the midst of a trial, he wants to help us have hope and faith and security in the midst of it. For Job tells us, for as sure as sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. They do. Welcome to life, and hey, welcome to Christianity. The health and wealth gospel, it is a heresy. It is not in the Bible. What I read in my Bible is that man is born to trouble. Things happen in our lives that are hard, that are difficult. We walk through trials. These guys are walking through trials. They're dispersed. They're refugees. They're being persecuted. And we all face trials of various kinds. And so James is addressing them through these words, but more importantly, God is addressing us through these words. He's looking us in our eyes and saying, hey, let me care for you. Let me help you understand your trials. Let me help you understand your suffering. Let me help you see how you can appropriately respond to these things. For my glory and your good. And so when we come across this verse, it may be difficult, but I submit to you it is one of the most profound and crucial for truly mature Christian living. And so we need to lean in here, don't we? We need to grow. We need to become mature as a local church. So I have two points this morning, both taken from the text. Number one, the purpose of trials. And then number two, the appropriate response to trials. So let's look at the first point. Number one, the purpose of trials. Look with me again at verse two. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. See, here's the point to start off with. We all face trials. It's part of life. That's why James doesn't say, count it all joy, brothers, if you meet trials. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials. You will face them. They are coming. The surest sparks fly upwards. They are coming your way. So when you face trials, you all will face trials. Alec Mottier, wonderfully in his commentary, says the following. He says, James is nothing if not realistic. Life is a tale of various trials. And so it is, isn't it? Life is a tale of various trials. A tale that no Christian is exempt from. A trial that no Christian gets a free pass from. A a reality and tale that no Christian can escape from. The Bible teaches it all the way through. That you will face trials. The whole idea of your best life now, no. Your best life will be in heaven. Right now there's going to be challenges and trials and temptations. And if you're a Christian, there are going to be distinct trials coming your way. In part because of your faith. Trials are going to happen. Trials are going to come. It's a reality that we see all the way through the Bible, and it's a reality if we just open our eyes and open our realistic and honest hearts. We all experience all the time. See, if we were to pause and just go around this room genuinely and just point people out and say, hey, listen, is there anything we could be praying for in your life at the moment that is a trial that is difficult? I submit to you, nearly everybody would have something. Nearly everybody would say something, that this is really hard for me. This is a trial. This is difficult. We all face trials. But what James wants to help us see 
is that for all of us as Christians, these trials aren't simply inevitable or accidental. No, they are purposeful. Each and every trial that comes into your life arrives with divine purpose. These trials don't just come upon you in a way that God goes, oh my goodness, I never knew that was going to happen. No, these trials, they arrive with purpose. He knew exactly that it was going to happen. And it arrives into our lives as an opportunity with purpose, with God-given purpose. And what is that purpose? Well, we see it in verse 3. The purpose of trials, verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. There is the purpose of trials. They come with a purpose. The trial arrives with a purpose of growth in steadfastness. And ultimately then, as we continue reading into verse 4, ultimately then, maturity. See, this is life-changing for a Christian when we stop and consider what trials really are as biblically defined. Trials are not accidental. They are not without purpose. They are not without God's pre-knowledge. No, as biblically defined, trials are tests and opportunities that arrive with clear purpose. And it is the purpose of steadfastness. Growth in steadfastness or perseverance or endurance. And ultimately then maturity. Because as we read in verse 4, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Do you see it? That's the purpose of the trial, to help you mature, to help you grow, to help you become more like Christ, to help you be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, make no mistake, it's so important to realize here. When trials come into our lives, they're not designed to test the genuineness of our faith. That's not the way this is written. He's not testing, is your faith really real or not? He's testing the genuine faith that is in existence. He's putting the genuine faith that is existence in your heart under duress, under difficulty. Why? So that you may grow. So that you may mature. So that you may be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Now, who amongst us does not want to be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? Amen? Who amongst us does not want the fruit that is talked about here? Who amongst us doesn't want to be Jesus? But who amongst us is like wrapped about the means to that end? I mean, is there not another way? I mean, I'd like to be like Jesus, but can we go for a plan B? It would appear not. God is going to use our trials and our difficulties as opportunities to test our faith that if embraced by us will help us to grow in steadfastness and ultimately then maturity. Notice the way James starts that verse in verse 3. He says, For you know. You know this. Church, you've been dispersed, you've been persecuted. I get what you're going through. But this is what you know. You know the trials and tests and opportunities that arrive with a purpose, a purpose for growth in steadfastness and ultimately maturity. You know this. He's seeking to remind them of what they already know. Sovereign Grace, do you know this? Do you know it? you hit trials and then just wonder, what is up with this? I'm a Christian. How is this happening? Do you know this? Do you know that trials will come? And do you know the purpose for those trials? That there are opportunities given by God that you may grow in steadfastness and ultimately be mature. Do you know this? My friends, it's so important that we do know this. When I was in the airport in Dallas thinking about this message, undergoing a 50-hour trial, I became very aware of why it's so important that we know this. 
And here's the reality. When we forget this, when we don't know that there is a divine purpose in our trial, then the first thing to go, the first casualty in the midst of the trial is a loss of biblical perspective. And when that happens, we are vulnerable to all manner of things. Because when we lose sight of that biblical perspective for our trials, then we start to get suspicious about God, suspicious about his sovereignty, suspicious about his power. And if he has that, then suspicious about his goodness. Why would he let this happen to me? What is he doing? Is this just fun to him? When we lose sight of the divine perspective of trials, we can very quickly undergo suspicion and speculation about God himself. And more often than not, then, that will end up in sin. Anger towards the Lord. Complaint. Self-pity. If he really loved me, I, I wouldn't be going through this. Anger. Complaint. Self-pity. Bitterness or worse. Do you really know this? Do you get it? Because it's so important that we do get it. You see, if you're anything like me, here's the reality. We can so quickly, when we lose sight of the divine perspective, we can so quickly think with our feelings, can't we? We disengage our brains. And we just think with our feelings. Our feelings drive forward everything in our lives. I think we all are tempted to do it at different times. Instead of standing on the word in the midst of a trial and going to what we know is true, we don't do that. We look away from the word and we undergo a trial and we think with our feelings. We all do it. Sinclair Ferguson says it this way. He says, mind and emotions are frequently confused when we find ourselves overtaken by distress and disorientated. This is part of our problem. We think with our feelings. Or more accurately, we let our feelings do our thinking for us. How tempting that is, isn't it? In the midst of a trial, we don't stand firm on God's word and know what we know. We start to think with our feelings. Or more accurately, we let our feelings start to do our thinking for us. We let our feelings start to dictate where God really is in this trial. We let our feelings dictate how God feels about us because we feel certain things about him, so he must feel that about us. We let feelings overtake everything that is taking place here. And suddenly we're in a lot of trouble, a deep lot of trouble. Mark Dever then helpfully says it this way. He says, embracing trials. Oh, this is so good. Embracing trials doesn't mean that we are to pretend that, we are not, that they are not trials. It simply means that we are not to let our reactions to them be determined to, by how they first feel to us. That is cold. That is wonderful pastoral care. It's not like we're meant to hit trials and not feel anything about them and just go, oh, yes, I'm pleased to be 50 hours in Dallas. That's great. But considering it pure joy, that, that's not what he's talking about. But what he is saying is when you hit a trial, your emotions will go one way. Fact. But this, not, this must not be the driving, determining factor about how you proceed in this trial. You've got to engage your brain, which means you've got to engage the truth. We will be duped by our feelings. And so there's something James wants us to know. There's something he wants to have burnt into our hearts as with a hot iron, and it's this, that trials are tests. They are tests and opportunities that arrive with a divine purpose, and that purpose is growth in steadfastness, and ultimately then maturity. They're not accidental, they're not a waste of time. They're a divine opportunity given by God to you so that you may grow and become more like his son. And so number two, how then do we respond to these trials? Number two, the appropriate response to 
tribes. Sovereign Grace, here's what I want you to understand. Our responses, when it comes to trials, our responses matter. They matter a lot. They are pivotal in what takes place in the midst of trials. So you don't grow to be mature in the faith just by having trial after trial after trial. You don't grow in the faith by having big trials that you have to contend with. You grow in the faith by responding appropriately to the trial. I mean, trials are grievous by themselves, are they not? They are difficult and they are painful. But imagine the scene where you go through trial after trial after trial and it is painful and difficult and yet you never mature in it because you missed the point. You never embrace them. You just put up with them and you wag your finger at the Lord. You never grow. Trials are grieving enough without going through them properly in a way that they bear the divine fruit in our lives that God has intended. Don't you think? We need to embrace them. When it comes to trials, our response matters. C.J. Mahaney says it this way. He says, so what we know about the divine purpose for a trial makes all the difference in informing our understanding of the trial. But how we actually respond to a trial will ultimately determine whether or not we actually experience the divinely attended purpose of that trial. And it's true. Trials are opportunities. They are, if you will, a crossroads. And we have a choice to make. Am I going to embrace this trial and therefore grow in my love for the Lord, grow in steadfastness and perseverance and endurance and ultimately therefore mature? Or am I going to run from it and be cross with God in it and angry with him and therefore in effect weaken our pursuit of him? What are we going to do? There are tests. The tests are going to come. Many of you are probably enduring this test right now. And we all, have a, we all have a decision, therefore, to make. Our trials come with divine purpose. But how we respond to them matters a great deal as to whether we get a thing out of them or not. Tim Keller then says it this way. He soberly says the following in his book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. I was shattered by this this week. He says, the stakes are high here. Suffering will either leave you a much better person or a much worse person than you were before. Trials and troubles in life, which are inevitable, will either make you or break you. But either way, you will not remain the same. And you won't. For sure, sparks fly up, which troubles fall. That trial is going to come. And you have a decision to make in that moment. How are you going to respond? And how you respond. Oh, the stakes could not be higher. Because if you go one way, you will mature in the Lord. You will become more like his son. But if you go the other, you will go away from the Lord. Because you'll blame him for everything. And you'll be cross with him. And you won't want to spend time with him because you will blame him for it all. And so instead of maturing, you don't actually stay the same. You go away from him. You can never stay the same. That's why I think that quote from Tim Keller is so wonderful. But either way, you will not remain the same. You won't. Because even if you decide, I'm just going to stay in the middle and stay indifferent to it. No, you won't. You'll start to think with your feelings like the rest of us. And your feelings will dictate then which way you go. None of us sit on the fence in trials and just go, oh, I'm just sort of putting up with it. No, if you're just putting up with it, you're already moving away from the Lord because you don't see it as he sees it. Either way, we, we move on. So how can we respond then in a way that is appropriate? How can we respond? How can we get this fruit that is talked about in verse 4 of being perfect and complete and lacking in nothing? How can we get this fruit of steadfastness in our lives? What is the appropriate response to the trial that brings this good fruit in our lives? Verse 2. Count it 
all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. What is the appropriate response to trials? Count it all joy. Because when you do that, you will embrace the trial as you realize what God is doing in the midst of this trial and this will cultivate steadfastness and ultimately maturity in your life. And if you don't count it all joy, you'll start to move away from him, angry with him, enduring self-pity with him, and thinking that he's to blame. The appropriate response is to count it all joy. Now, I'm aware that those four words can cause great anguish because so often they're not understood. And so I want to slow down on those four words so that you do understand them, so that you see what James is saying, so you see what this God-breathed word is actually communicating to you. So look at that first word, count. The first word of the appropriate fruit-bearing response is count. See, that word count speaks of consideration and assessment. What he's talking about here, consider, assess, count. And what James is saying here then is that we're going to truly bear this God-given fruit in our lives of steadfastness and maturity. We need to consider and assess and count our trial in line with the biblical perspective of the trial. And here's the biblical perspective of the trial. That your trial is a test, an opportunity that arrives with a divine purpose the purpose of growth in steadfastness and ultimately then maturity. James knows when that trial comes, you're going to be tempted to think with your feelings very quickly. So you need to pause and you need to get on your knees and you need to remind yourselves, this trial isn't just an accident. This hasn't slipped through God's net. No, this is purposeful. God has allowed this for my good and his glory. And if I embrace this, which is his desire, I'll become more like his son. Count. Consider. Biblically assess your trial. Count. Count. Count it. (laughs) When you read a word like it, And you think, is that a very important word in those four words? Yep. Particularly with James. James just doesn't have any fat on his words at all. I mean, I think if he was like a preacher today, he'd be like 10 minutes. Because he's just like, boom, boom, boom. Thanks for coming. I mean, he's just so clear. Count, count it. Alec Motier again in his commentary says the following. He says, the small word it contains the whole of life. It sums up in its tiny compass every one of the various trials which the present may contain, the future may bring, or the past may keep stored in memory. There is no trial, no great calamity or small pressure, nor overwhelming sorrow or small rub of life outside the plan of God. So encompassed in that word, it, is all of life. Every trial, every difficulty, every moment of suffering that you will face in your life is contained in that two-letter word, it. And then he says, count it. All of those things. Count it all. All those trials, all those difficulties, all that suffering, as hard as it may be, count it all joy. Now, I think it's often in these two words that the confusion comes. So let me explain. See, please don't misunderstand. James is not suggesting here that in the midst of our trials, then there should be no sorrow or sadness at all. And so if you're going to life group and saying how hard life is, mm -mm, 
should be smiling, should be happy, should be joyful. That's not what he's saying. He's aware that suffering is hard. Trials are difficult. They will often come to us in the midst of much grief and much difficulty and many tears. And he isn't saying for a moment that there should be none of that, no sorrow, no tears, no sadness. That's not his point. Likewise, he isn't saying here, listen, he isn't saying, feel it all joy. Did you notice that? Count it, assess it, consider it. But not feel it all joy. He's not saying, listen, as you go through trials, just be happy about them, because God sent them. Hey! I mean, yeah, it's difficult for you, and this is really difficult, and it's hard, but, well, just smile, because God's in it. Do you not feel happy? God's in it. That's not what he's saying. Trials are difficult, and they are hard, and they are grieving. And sometimes that can come with a grief that lasts months or even years. And he's not saying we should feel happy about it. Now, in fact, the joy that he's talking about here is not an emotional response at all. He's not talking about joy in the sense of an emotional response. He's talking about joy in the sense of a state of being. A deep joy. A joy that may not make it to our faces. But a joy and a gladness and a pleasure that understands though this is difficult, though, Lord, I'm on my knees begging you to take this trial from me, I nonetheless have a deep-seated joy in my heart because I know, ultimately, you are at the bottom of it all. And if I embrace this, then I will mature. If I embrace this and trust you, I will grow in steadfastness and perseverance and endurance. And ultimately then, I will be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Oh Lord, thank you that my trial is not a waste of time. It's difficult, but it is not a waste. I'm not happy about it, but I'm thankful that you're working in it to help me become more like your son. Do you see it? Do you know it? He's not talking about joy as an emotional response. He's talking about joy as a state of being, a deep-seated contentment, and joy knowing he is even now working for my good and his glory. So I trust him. But it is hard. It is difficult. But I want to embrace this trial and pursue that type of joy because I know as I do, I will grow in steadfastness and become more like his son. And so I thank him and find joy in him that this trial is not a waste in my life but he'll use it for my good and his glory. When it comes to trials, our response matters. We either embrace it by counting it all joy, in which case we'll grow, or we run from it, and we wag our finger at the Lord, and the trial still remains, but we don't grow at all. We just stay the same, or worse, go away from him. My friends, maybe you're here today and you are presently walking through a trial. A trial of various kinds, exactly what James talks about. Or maybe you're here today and you're about to go through a trial. Because you're sure sparks fly upwards, troubles fall. It's going to happen. And as our church grows, we will experience many more trials in reality. We'll experience the sorrow of deaths, sometimes expected, sometimes unexpected. And we will grieve together in the midst of that. And you never know when that's coming. Maybe you're here today and you are presently walking through a trial. Maybe you're here and you're about to go through a trial. Maybe you're here today and you are presently going through a trial without an expiry date. This isn't just a momentary trial for you. But it seems to come with a tag. 
of no finish date. It's just going on and on. And maybe it'll keep going on until Jesus returns or till death you part. Listen, whatever your circumstance, with great affection for you and a desire to be sensitive in the midst of your trial, I nonetheless want to be a bold pastor like James. And so I want to encourage you, count it all joy. Whatever you're working through, count it all joy. And if you're here today and you are enduring a trial with no expiration date, I want to encourage you to keep going. Don't give up. Because that's what he's talking about in verse 4. He's talking about not giving up. He says, and let steadfastness have its full effect. I.e., don't give up. That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Alec Motier in his commentary says this in response to verse 4. It's very sobering. James is bringing a word of caution here. A believer might endure for a while and then tire of enduring. And in this case, then, the desired growth to maturity is halted midway. There has to be a persistency of enduring. Steadfastness must have its full effect. The road is therefore hard and long, and the task is unremitting. To endure the first onset of the startling unexpected trial, and to endure again while it persists, and then to go on enduring is hard. But we are called to be to persistent enduring. But the hard road has a glorious destination for us too, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, if you are then undergoing a trial with no expiration date, I want to encourage you, keep going. Keep looking up. Keep counting it. Keep considering it, assessing your trial in light of Scripture. Keep, keep going. And here's the promise. As you keep going, you will be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Not only will the world look on at you in the midst of your trial and go, what is up with that? How are they able to be content in the midst of what I consider a great trial? What is up with that? You will be a walking evangelistic moment. But not just that. You'll be being made perfect and mature and complete. The very purpose of the trial you embraced and then grew through. My friends, James is no Chinese juggler. He is direct, he is often abrupt, and he was going to come straight at us week after week, and let me tell you, he does not miss. He's coming after us. He's coming after our hearts, he's coming after our consciences, he's coming after our souls. And the reason why he's doing that because ultimately this is God-breathed. Ultimately, this is God caring for those 12 tribes of the dispersion. He wants to help them see, listen, you may be struggling in the midst of your persecution. I know you're finding this hard, and I love you, and you are my sons and daughters. But in each thing, count it all joy. Because I'm at work. I'm going to use this for your good and my glory. Embrace the trial, my people. Embrace it because through this you will grow in steadfastness and you will mature to be more like my son. And God looks us in the eyes today, 2,000 years on, and re-preaches this now through me because of exactly the same reason. He's going after us. He's going after our souls. He's going after our hearts. He's seeking to care for us and help us realize, I'm with you. I'm going to use this for your good and my glory. 
Now, Alfred Plumer, a Puritan, he says then this in his commentary that I just wanted to read in closing. He says, This hard saying by James is really a merciful one. For it teaches us to endure our trials and a spirit that will make us feel them least. Isn't that beautiful? When you walk through a trial, it is hard. And it will still be hard. But when you realize in the midst of this trial, God is with me. He's proved that. He's proved through the cross that he is always on my side. And as I walk through this trial, although it is difficult and painful, as I count it all joy, he will help me to become steadfast and ultimately mature more like his son. The trial will still be painful, but in all reality, you will feel it the least because you'll see he's with you and you'll see there's a purpose. As a Sovereign Grace Church, I want to encourage you Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, I thank you for James. I thank you for your brother that you called and equipped to lead the church in Jerusalem and ultimately pen scripture that ultimately is your breath exhaled. Lord, thank you for caring for us. Thank you that your placard over our lives is not just that it will be our best life now. (laughs) No, the placard of our lives is that trials will come. Difficulties will take place. But you remind us that you are always with us and there is a divine purpose to each and every one of them. So Lord, help us to embrace that truth. Help us to mature and become more like your son. Help us to be steadfast and persevere and endure in the midst of our genuine trials. And would we consider them and count them and assess them pure joy. For your glory, Lord. Amen.